This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good 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 it is Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check out Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Glove Stories with Murph, presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. It is good to have you with us, and it is great to have this week's guest with us. He spent 16 seasons in the big leagues, eight of them with the Philadelphia Phillies, always a fan favorite. Former pitcher, left-hander Randy Wolf joins us on Glove Stories. Randy, good to see you, man. Greg, thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, you know, it's uh, I think back to the time uh, your era of playing with the Phils. And for me, so many great memories of watching that team and covering that team. But uh, let's let's start before that for you, because as you were growing up uh, in Southern California, uh, I'm imagining playing a couple different sports out in the backyard with your brother, Jim or whatever. What, what was it like as you uh, started to develop your love for baseball? Well, I, I kind of played all sports growing yeah. up. Um, and I played basketball, played football, played a lot of soccer and played baseball. And, um, you know, it was good because I, I didn't really play year round baseball. And at that time, um, you know, travel ball wasn't a thing like it is now. So I got to play other sports. Um, but I think the only sport that I kind of just really loved was baseball. I liked the other sports. Uh, I liked playing in football games. I hated practice. I did not want to like tackle my teammates um and then soccer obviously it's just a lot of running around um and also the only sport I really watched was baseball and uh just watching Braves games every day on TBS when you come home from school uh playing wiffle ball um you know just there was nothing better than those weekends and hearing uh this week in baseball with mel allen yeah just i always got depressed at the final the end music of this week in baseball because it was over and i just loved that show and that was it i just i loved playing the game i loved everything about the game and uh luckily i was i was decent at it to where i could keep on playing yeah you, you literally just described my childhood as well. The difference is that you get to continue on. I stopped in high school, but, uh, but yeah, you know, the, the game of baseball, it's funny. You mentioned practice in, in baseball. I also played, you know, all the, all the other sports as well. Baseball practice to me was so much fun, so much fun to be a part of the rest of the, the practices I could do without, but baseball, it was, it, it was always fun to be out there on the diamond. Was it not? I agree. And I think that's the one thing that when, especially now that I'm a parent and I think as your children get older and they find out what they want to do, mm -hmm. as opposed to what you want them to do. Yeah. I think the one thing when you find out what they really love doing is what do they, whether it's, you know, playing guitar, playing an instrument, um, their kind of studies, baseball, whatever it is. I think if they enjoy the preparation part of it, that's what they love to do. That was the thing about baseball. I loved going to the batting cage. I loved playing catch, working on it. Um, you know, we'd go to the baseball field and play over the line all the time, playing wiffle ball. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I we play, you know, my neighbors and I would play pickup basketball once in a while, but there was something that just the, I loved the games of basketball. I loved playing the games of football, right. but I hated practice. I hated the preparation. And then, as I got older and I got better and the preparation became more fine tuned to me, I loved that more and more. 
And I think that's that's really where I found that I, I loved the game because I loved preparing and practicing for the game. And it, it was that desire to just get better that shows that how much I really truly loved it. Yeah, it makes such a big difference when you when you love something like that and can continue to do it and do it for a career and 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 do it for a long time like you were able to do. Uh, you're a, a California guy and drafted by the Dodgers uh, out of high school. It was it hard to say I'm not coming yet um, and 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 go to college. I mean, it kind of was, but at the same time, I was a kind of later draft pick. I was a 25th rounder. Um, it was a kind of a weird senior. I I had a good senior year, but my dad passed away that year. I didn't really have an agent and, um, or an advisor, they called it then, but I think there was a lot of, there was a huge signability issue with me and, and mm -hmm. which was kind of true. I had a scholarship to go to Pepperdine and I really knew that my, the risk of becoming a professional baseball player at 17, 18 years old, you know, it was, it was pretty high and it was going to take, a lot for me to not go to college. I felt like if I, if I was good enough to play in the big leagues, I was going to be good enough after three or four years of yeah. college. So I'd rather kind of get an education. If I get hurt, uh, I, I'm kind of prepared for the world. And it was a, a decision I am really happy I made. However, about a week before school started, the Dodgers like doubled their signing bonus um, <laughs> and gave me pause but it was still not at the point where I felt it was going to take away from me going to college. Um, and even like there was um, like a banquet dinner for the, some like all Valley team and Tommy Lasorda was there. And oh, after wow. he spoke, he brought me over and, you know, Tommy Lasorda has uh, he's a, he's <laughs> definitely a gift for Gab and he's a salesman. And he was, you know, just talking about D, you know, bleeding Dodger blue and giving the whole Tommy Lasorda rant and, um, I thought it was an amazing moment, I but bet. it didn't, it didn't fully sell me either. <laughs> oh, that's a pretty mature decision at that point in your life, because I think a lot of guys, uh, you know, would have been gaga over that. And, you know, talk about the signing bonus, but you decide to go to Pepperdine, which ain't a bad place to spend your, uh, your late teens and early twenties when you're, when you're in college an athlete like yourself, um, I have, you enjoyed yourself at Pepperdine, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, I, I had a really good time. Um, you know, there's parts of it where I feel like I was really between UCLA and, and Pepperdine. And there's times where I think I think UCLA, I would have had a more, more of that college experience where okay. Pepperdine's a very small school. It's a private school. They don't even have a football team. Right. Um, but I made some great friends. I had a great time. Um, the baseball program wasn't as good as it kind of went downhill. And it was kind of in a transition period, going through different pitching coaches and, and different head coaches. Um, but all that being said, I loved my experience there. And, and walking to your class from your dorm and you, you're propped up on a, on, a, on a bluff, looking down the ocean every day when it's yeah. 71 degrees, light little breeze, no clouds. And you get that for three years, you kind of, it's hard to say, take it for granted until you, I eventually signed for the Phillies. And the first thing <laughs> I get shipped off to is upstate New York and Batavia, New York. Yeah. 
And that's when you realize you're you're not in Malibu anymore. Uh, it's a little <laughs> bit different up there. <laughs> well, what a perfect segue because that's where we're headed next. I mean, you're right. So, so you leave the West Coast of California um, and you're a wide-eyed young professional ball player now. You go to upstate New York, as you point out, in Batavia, uh, and you're a farmhand. And, you know, w- you went through the minor leagues pretty quickly, but I would imagine even that two and two and a half years that you spent um, you know, kind of down in the minors, making your way through, you learn an awful lot from a lot of great baseball guys through those years. Do you not? Yeah. We, you know, my college experience actually really prepared me profession for professional baseball. I had two different head coaches. I had three different pitching coaches, all from different perspectives. My freshman year pitching coach, uh, Jeff Zahn probably had the largest impact for me because I was really raw coming out of high school. I remember in high school, the catcher would give a location for fastball instead of just putting a one down. I would call timeout, bring him out there and say, hey, just set up down the middle. I'm going to throw it as hard as I can. And hopefully it's a strike. <laughs> and I got to college and Jeff Zahn was a big league left-handed pitcher yeah. for many years in the big leagues. Uh, wasn't a hard thrower, really knew, knew the art of pitching. Worked with my delivery, worked with understanding how to read hitters how to set up hitters, where to go with fastballs, how to throw the fastball where you want it, how to throw the off-speed where you want it, why to throw an off-speed, all these, all these really important parts of, of pitching. And, um, and then he left, went to become a head coach of Michigan, and I had another big, big league sidearm guy, this guy Jeff Verhoeven, my, uh, sure. my sophomore year. And then uh, junior year, uh, we kind of had a head coach, pitching coach, uh, head coach, pitching coach, uh, head coach, pitch coach guy that Frank Sanchez, who kind of did everything. And it was just great getting all those different perspectives because that's yeah. what really pro ball is like, especially early on. Um, so it was great getting a whole bunch of different ideas on how to pitch and really kind of taking apart what I felt was best for me. Um, and that really prepared me for, for pro ball. And, and when even going to Batavia, New York, where I was with a host family, sleeping on a mattress, on the floor in the basement where I'm pretty sure a dog always went to the bathroom on that carpet and maybe died on that carpet. It smelled <laughs> so bad. And I'm six inches off the ground from that on this, on this bed, but it, it reeked. And I think there was one shower for the whole house. It was a family of oh, four, man. really nice family. Um, and, at this, and, and the odd thing is all, all those things going on. I was like, so excited. Cause I'm, this is, this is pro ball. Yeah. This is pro ball. And, um, you know, in short, a ball. It's, you know, these are small little stadiums, and but I just felt like putting on a professional uniform, playing under the lights. Like I felt like I'm like I felt like a big leaguer, even in short a ball, uh, yeah. just playing professional baseball. Yeah, and in those towns, you know, the the athletes, the players get noticed and they get recognized because the town the town is invested in those teams. So you know, there's a little bit of excitement around that. And you probably do feel like a, like a celebrity, a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. But the ponds kept getting bigger for you very quickly. Uh, when did you get to the point where you thought to yourself, okay, all right, I think uh, I think the big leagues are in my future. Was there, was there a moment where you thought that or wasn't until you got the phone call? Well, I mean, I think you have to have a, like kind of a, a sense of non-selfish arrogance to be a big league pitcher. Um, and I kind of felt that when I signed, I felt like, okay, I'm going to get in the big leagues. And at the time, the Phillies weren't running for the pennant at the time. No. <laughs> and uh, 
I think that increased my odds quite a bit. And I, I really felt that I had this arrogance and ignorance of like, no, I, I think I could pitch in the big leagues now. And my first full year, I started off in double A. And I, I think I only made like four starts in double A. And I think one of my last starts was against the double A uh, affiliate for the Yankees. And Reggie Jackson happened to be at that game. And I think I struck out like 13 guys in seven innings. I think I got one or two hits. It was a really good game. And for some reason, the media went to him about how I pitched. And he goes on and on about how I should be in the big leagues right then. And this guy's definitely a big league pitcher. And um, I remember the next day he was there. He called me over, talked to me. And I think that was when I'm like, okay, maybe maybe yeah. the stupidity that's going in my, my brain um, might actually be true. And, um, and also at that time, I think it was my first big league camp. The next year, uh, I was throwing a bullpen and Johnny Padres um, when the media asked him and he all of a sudden said, no, he should break with the team. I was just spring training in 99. This guy should break with the team. He's a big league pitcher. And, you know, I think the Philly, the Philly brass was like, Johnny <laughs> zip it, man. Yeah. No. We have other plans, Johnny. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was cool to hear those things. And yeah. it, I definitely didn't let it get to my head, but I felt, okay. I really feel like I'm going to pitch in the big league. So, which is, is good when you get that call, you're not shocked. But if it's one of those things, when you dream about something your whole life and you finally get that call, there's all of a sudden a sense of anxiety of like, Oh, now what? <laughs> yeah. Now what I'm, am I going to do? I've been working towards it. Now what do I do? Right. Yeah. And um, then it's just, okay, I've worked so hard to get here and you have that sense of, well, don't screw it up. Yeah. And that is really uh, that anxiety that comes in. It's, it's this whole, so many different emotions of, of excitement, anxiety, anticipation, and just, it's just a bundle of these things. Um, and it's just, but you feel like you, you have to feel like you belong. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because so many guys uh, talk about feeling like they belong, but even I go back to, we were talking to Mike Schmidt a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, he, for the first couple of weeks, months in the big leagues, he didn't feel like he belonged with Mike Schmidt, you know, the all time, the all time great. And it's like, baseball is such a humbling sport and it, and you, you fail more than you, you succeed uh, more often than not, uh, certainly as an offensive player that, that it is very humbling, but at some point I would imagine it clicks that, okay, yeah, I do belong. And that's, that's when, you know, you're a big leaguer for, for the long haul. Right. Yeah. But it's also a kind of a seesaw because the fear of, of not doing it and the fear of not them for them, not needing you anymore. is also the driver that makes you better. Mm. If you feel like, Oh, I've got it. I'm here in the big leagues and you feel complacent that is when you just get pummeled. And I think it's it's kind of one of those things where you have to know you belong and also fear you don't, as, as odd as that sounds. So um, yeah, you just, you really have to feel like there's an old Stephen King book called The Langoliers. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. basically these people where time is coming up behind them and they're gonna sweep them off the face of the earth and you have to keep moving. And that's kind of what you feel like 
to be better as a baseball player, you feel like something's behind me and I can't let that catch me. So I have to keep on pushing myself regardless of whether or not I feel like I belong here. And the sooner you realize how quick, how quickly baseball has a very short term memory, organizations have a very short term memory and, and you always have to prove yourself over and over again. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, it's a really uh, good way of putting it. Uh, it really kind of makes it very clear for folks that haven't been uh, in your position playing in the big leagues. All right, so we can't go through our glove stories without asking about the day you make your major league debut because that's a day that none of you ever forget. Uh, for you, it was against the Blue Jays, uh, and uh, it was a pretty good day for you, right? It was. It was uh, just a nerve-wracking day leading up to it. Um, I remember I got called up on the 9th, on June 9th, June 10th, the Phillies had a day off and I drove to Philly and I went into the stadium on the 10th, on the off day, unpacked my bags, went out to the stadium, went out on the mound when nobody was there. I wanted to know what it felt like to stand on the mound at the vet, which was huge. I mean, it's a 60,000 seat, you know, huge 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 stadium so i didn't want to kind of be overwhelmed when i went out there the first time so i went out there there's nobody there so i threw against the outfield wall ran around a little bit get some blood going and just kind of get used to what it looked like so when i got out there i wasn't awestruck um and the next day it's just you know i kind of had this my whole career you're just waiting for the for your routine to start when you start like warming up stretching that's when your nerves kind of subside because you get in your routine. But all leading up to that is just this ball of anxiety because you just want to get going. And my warm up felt good. I, you know, I just kind of felt like <laughs> it's a weird. I always, I always have these like uh, kind of bipolar events. I, I felt like I was floating, but yet my cleats were made of cement. So <laughs> it's a weird, weird combo. Um, and I remember I, I, uh, through strike one and the the crowd, huge applause. And then I went ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four. <laughs> and, I got, this game. <laughs> and then I got boos. So it took me five pitches to uh, to get my first boo in Philly. Um, and then I remember uh, I got a ground out next pitch and I struck out my next two guys, uh, Sean Casey and, and Carlos Delgado. So nice. those are our first you know, big two strikeouts. And then yeah. rest of the game kind of, uh, I did all right. And as the game went on, I humanized the hitters. I really felt like these guys are big leaders. If I leave it anywhere over the plate, they are going to crush it. That's what you're told your whole life, your whole time through the minors. Like you can't make mistakes in the big leagues. You can't make mistakes in the big leagues. Right. And in my game, I made plenty of mistakes and it was a foul ball. Made another strike, pop up. Oh, I made a, I hung a curveball. They took it. And I'm like, okay, all right. Like they're human. And so am I. So I'm going to keep on doing the best I can and realize I don't have to be perfect. Um, that helped out quite a bit. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, we there's a great tradition in baseball, although it's starting to, to kind of wane for for lots of different reasons. But uh, when you're a young player in baseball, there was an unwritten rule, certainly when you played. Uh, and that was uh, don't talk unless someone's talking to you. You know, the veteran guys uh, kind of ruled the roost and the and the younger guys kind of just fit in. Right. So uh, rookie hazing has always been a, a part of baseball. At least it certainly was uh, when you were coming up. Um, there's a, there's a great tradition in baseball that many people probably don't know that, that you were a part of out there in Chicago, right? Yes. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it, it actually, this tradition died away while I was still playing. And like you were saying before, there, there, there was a huge divide between rookies and veterans. Yeah. And um, you know, that also kind of died away. And I necessarily don't think it's a bad thing. I want guys who are on the team their fellow big leaguers, I want them to feel comfortable. I want them to mm -hmm. feel like they could be themselves and, and, and perform at the best of their abilities. I don't feel like I don't want a guy who's going to sit his locker, stare at his clothes and not talk to anybody. Right. I want them to be part of the, the team. But in those days, you know, this was 1999. I got called up. Um, Kurt Schilling, you know, the, the quiet, mild-mannered guy that he is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sitting in my locker. And I, I've, I've got two starts in the big leagues. Mind you, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I, I just got done in San Diego. I, I threw eight innings, gave up one run, feeling good. So we get to Chicago, and it's a, it's a Friday. And after batting practice, there's a can of paint in my locker with a paintbrush on it. And I have no idea what in the world's going on. And uh, all of a sudden, Kurt goes, all right, Wolfie, rookie, have fun painting tonight. And I still, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Now, finally, it's explained to me. They're like, hey, you know that statue when we drove in here? And I'm like, no, I have no idea. It's my <laughs> first time ever in Wrigley. I have no idea what you're talking about. So when you're driving from the hotel to Wrigley, you're driving on, you're driving on Lakeshore Drive, and you turn left on Belmont Avenue. Now, on that corner, there's an old Civil War statue um, of a uh, horse bucking and... Um, Oddly enough, the name of the, the soldier is uh, Philip Sheridan. No relation to the clubhouse guy. <laughs> Philly's clubhouse manager, Philip yeah, Sheridan. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so there's a horse on there, and his balls are pretty present <laughs> on, this, on, this, uh, on this statue. So the rookie- it's Very much to scale is what, is what you're saying. You, you know, more, genetically to more scale. To, more to scale. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. The embellished version. So <laughs> I'm told that as a rookie, I got to go paint them. Now, I didn't get spray paint. I got this can of, of red paint with a paintbrush. And I'm just like, oh, man, how, how am I, what am I going to do here? And really, the only two rookie rookies were me and Cliff Polite. Okay. So we were told we have to do it. So we have a day in that day. Uh, after the game, I go to like some department store and get like a really cheap black long sleeve shirt. And I'm going to wear that when I go out there. So we take a cab, Cl Cliff and I take a cab out there. I'm sitting there with a, in a, the hotel dry cleaning bag is the, the paint and the paintbrush. We get out. It's 11 o'clock at night. And it's not a, it's not like there aren't any cars around. Oh, busy intersection. Driving in the circle, and we have to climb up this statue. Mind you, the base of it is probably five and a half to six feet tall. 
So we got to get up there. And I start getting up there. I take off the, the lid. I have a difficulty paying, taking off the lid for the paint. And I start all of a sudden, oh yeah, mind you, uh, Wayne Gomes and Marlon Anderson are there too. The chaperone. Wayne Gomes, Wayne Gomes is videoing this on a camera. <laughs> you, you know, you didn't have phones at the time right. to do this. So he's vid videoing this on a camera. So I'm up there painting and all of a sudden her, Wolfie, Wolfie, cop, cop, cop. And I jump down. Six feet. <laughs> Horrible landing. And I'm just glad my ACL didn't blow up. Right. And Cliff helps me get up there again. And I'm up there painting as fast as I can. I'm getting paint everywhere. And finally, I'm, I'm like, Cliff, you know, shine a light over here. And he shows me I, the, the balls are quite red. <laughs> so finally, I'm like, all right, hold on. So I lean, I grab the back leg of the horse, lean over, and I put a big P on the side of the horse. And I get off and I'm, we're walking and I've got paint all over my arms. <laughs> Wayne and Marlon are just dying laughing because I'm covered in paint. And I, we get in a cab, like nothing happened. I'm sitting here with red paint. Right. So as soon as we get in the hotel, I take off the shirt, throw it in the trash. Like, okay, I did it. So we take the bus the next day on a Saturday. We get, we're driving the same. We turn that corner off Lakeshore going to Belmont. All of a sudden, you know, people see the balls at one angle and they're la they're laughing, they're clapping. And then we turn the corner and we're doing the little loop around the horse. And then there's the big P on the side of the horse. Nice. And everybody starts laughing and we get to this, the park. And uh, even Kurt was like, good job. You know, gave me a little congratulations. And that's where I thought the story would end. Right. But it doesn't. So no. after batting practice that day, Tito, Terry Francona was the manager then. Tito says, um, hey, guys, hey, we, we need to have a talk here. Nobody really does anything. He goes, hey, listen, guys, we, we, we did talk here. Hey, and, and Kurt, you know, shockingly is loud talking the clubhouse. And Tito says, Shill, would you shut your mouth? I got something to say here. And then it gets dead quiet in the clubhouse. And I'm just sitting there like, what is going on here? And Tito just starts going off on us. Like, hey, we're not off to a good start. Who do you guys think you are? When you guys are done with the game, go to bed. Go to bed. I got to deal with this stuff. Not only do I have to deal with us not having a good season, I got to deal with you guys pulling these kind of stupid things. What's wrong with you guys? Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, well, listen, I got, I got these guys now that, I, that you guys have to talk to. And all of a sudden, these two guys come out. And they, they tell us that they're Chicago police officers <laughs> and they're with the Metro division. And one of the guys I'm almost sure was one of the Chicago cops in the movie, The Fugitive. Okay. Out <laughs> of the glasses. I'm like 90% sure it was the same guy. And he just starts going off on us. Hey, you guys think you're funny. Um, you know how much money this is going to cost us. You guys make us, you guys, you know, make these guys, uh, paint the horse and that's a lot of work for the city. And now we have to deal it. Now we're here. And then you guys are stupid enough to video this thing. You guys are complete idiots. All right. I want these guys. I need to talk to these guys. And it says Wayne Gomes, Marlon Anderson, Cliff Pleat, and Randy Wolf. So we go into Tito's office, which the manager's office back then in Chicago was tiny. Right. Yep. 
and the the officer is going off on us and he goes all right since you two didn't do it you guys could leave so marlon and wayne leave and it's just cliff and i and cliff is sitting on the floor 100 yard stare i can tell he is just like we're done like we're in huge trouble and my mind was number one i am selling shilling out 100 <laughs> percent two he better pay my bail and my attorney fees because he's right i did this yeah so i was actually getting more like angry than i was like scared i'm like why do i have to go through this and then um so as they're going on the cop is telling us what's going on we're going to go to jail get our ids and cliff is like can i change first he goes no you're not going to change you're going to go to jail (laughs) in your baseball uniform so everybody knows who you are and what you did so we go to get our ids and the officer's like, all right, let's go. Come on, let's go. We're going to jail. So I'm like, okay, I guess we're going to go to jail. <laughs> so we're walking out of the clubhouse, and the cop is looking at us, and he goes, hey, hold on. He goes, hey. And he, the cop addresses the whole team in the clubhouse, and he says, do you guys have anything to say to these guys? Do you have anything to say to these guys? These guys are going to jail for you. Do you have anything to say to these guys? And there's dead silence. He's like, that's unbelievable. These guys are going to go to jail for you guys. I mean, if there's one thing you could say that I think, you know, for these players right here that did this, one thing you could definitely say to these guys is, uh, gotcha. <laughs> Everybody starts <laughs> erupting and laughing and dying. Oh, man. And I, I mean, I just had a huge sense of relief. I, I think I had like just a really awkward laugh, but, um, but it was pretty. So I mean, that was one of the most elaborate pranks uh, yeah. that, that I had even – my whole career after that you know and it's so funny because uh as a rookie in baseball you don't know about it but but so many people know about that particular prank it's been it's happened to 100 guys in major league (laughs) baseball uh but they keep it they get the pretty good lid on it for uh for a while there but uh it's it's such a great story so the the painting of the testicles in chicago is an age-old tradition that you got to be a part of so way to go on that um, you know, that's what I, I love about, you know, when, when guys retire, the one thing that most guys say they miss the most is that camaraderie between the guys and, and, you know, a clubhouse, uh, is everything from, you know, people, people busting on one another constantly, uh, you know, picking each other up and, but that camaraderie, you know, you can't really replace that in later life. And I think that's that, that kind of story, that kind of moment is the kind of thing you remember forever. And that's what, that's what makes sports great. If you ask me. Yeah, the, the, the locker room banter conversations, the digging on each other, it doesn't translate over to real life or no. normal jobs. Um, you know, it's just you have to have alligator skin and, um, and enjoy it. And just not to, it's, it's good because you learn just to not take yourself too seriously yeah. and, and enjoy the moment. And, uh, you know, you're with these guys more than, you know, your own family. So mm-hmm. you're, the amount of time you're with these guys in the clubhouse, you have to make the most of it. Yeah. Well, you got the chance to get, get some folks back, or at least, you know, be on the other side of things. Uh, when Brett Myers was a young player, now you weren't much uh, older than him when, when he, when Brett got up there, but uh, you were involved in, in uh, kind of razzing him for a moment or two, right. In spring training. I was kind of dragged into it. So um, in spring training, we were doing these like morning mile runs as almost like a semi-cardio semi warm-up thing. And Brett would just take the opportunity. We all, the whole point was to stay in a group 
mm-hmm. and kind of all run together and it's you know not a competition right the first day brett just takes off <laughs> you know he's all of a sudden you know trying to set a record right the four minute mile yeah yeah, yeah. and uh you know the older guys like hey chill like we're just we're running together here so just chill out a little bit and these are all pitchers here so the next day we talked to brett i didn't well other guys are talking to brett hey let's try to stay together here nice little warm-up run everybody goes together again boom he takes off <laughs> so the third day what what a lot of people don't know about real cormier was that Riel Cormier was a super athlete, like a ridiculous athlete. He was good at everything he did. Shooting pool, throwing darts, golf, like whatever he did, it was, it was yeah. ridiculous. So he was like, okay, this guy wants to go, okay. And one thing about Riel is that he's, I think, part Kenyan because <laughs> guy can run, flat out yeah. run. And he blows Brett out of the water in that day. And, you know, Real wasn't a young guy. So people kind of gave Brett a hard time for a bit boat race by an older guy. So at the end of, of that workout, Real tells me, hey, stick around. I need your help with something. I'm like, okay. So everybody's gone. And it's just me and Real. And uh, we take every single thing hanging up in Brett's locker and tie it into the smallest, smallest knots all together. And then we dunk it in water and put it in a trash, in a plastic bag. So it will smell awesome when it gets there the next day and it won't dry. Then we take a shower shoes and we hammer them to the locker (laughs) and uh, we cut holes in his hat. Um, And this is all, you know, I'm following orders here. Right. Yeah. And uh, and then Rial put a towel in his locker and it said, uh, I think he used a Sharpie or, or paint. It said, slow down Rook. <laughs> and um, so what I didn't know is that we left and this was Boa's first year. Okay. And he told Frank Kopenbarger, the clubhouse manager at the time, hey, clean up all that stuff, put out new, new everything put it all there. So I don't think Brett ever even knew about it. Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So our, our hazing, which was really me just following Rial's orders was a hazing that actually never even happened. How about that? Because of it was taken down. So I think, I think Boa thought we were, Rial was threatened by Brett. And I think Larry liked the competition of it. Um, but yeah, it was one of those uh, missed hazing opportunities, I guess. How about that? Oh, I can't. I can't wait to ask Bo about that when I talk yeah. to him next. That's good yeah. stuff. That's good stuff. Hey, uh, before I let you go, um, I, I want to talk about. Uh, you know, I, I started the show by saying you were a fan favorite, and you certainly were. And and you know, in the time that you were here in Philadelphia, in the eight seasons that you were here in Philly, uh, you had some teams that were also rounds, but you also had some teams that were pretty good. And you know, a couple second place finishes in the division. You can never get over the top, but uh, but in the midst of all that, you know, 
the the wolf pack begins and be, and kind of takes on a life of its own. And, you know, for anybody that was watching Phillies baseball in that time period, it's it's a memory that is very distinct. What do you remember about the first time seeing those guys up there uh, doing their thing? And I, I know you've you connected with them later on uh, down in that season. But what do you remember most about looking up the first time and seeing the wolf pack? Because that was a new thing then. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the only thing they had at the time was the the shillimeter, which was okay. those two guys, they, they belly bumped every time uh, Kurt had a strikeout. <laughs> and then I remember it was my, I think my third start or so, right around then, and it was against the Pirates. And yeah. um, man, it was, uh, it was crazy um, just seeing this banner. Uh, actually, I don't even know if they had a banner yet. I think they just had masks. The masks. Yep. Uh, I don't. It was one of. The, I forget which one came first. But you know, we weren't selling out at that time, and uh, one of the guys just had this big booming voice, and the other pitcher, if he threw like was two and zero, you could hear him yell, "He's wild!" And then <laughs> you could hear them doing their 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 noises when they dance um up there and and it was pretty it was pretty crazy and and you know you kind of think it's like a a, a one-off thing they did it that day and you don't know who these guys are right and they just came and they came and then you know i had a fir my first like five or six starts in the big leagues were really good and then i had a string of really bad starts i didn't win a game for a couple months but there they were every time um they were there every game um, there was a time when right before the all-star break, uh, Tito told me that, Hey, I might want you to get in the bullpen today, get some work. Cause you're going to have some time off. They saw me warming up and they drove to the stadium with their banner and they got right up to the 700 level. Oh, and they were there when I came out for my relief appearance. So, um, and then just getting to know them, good group of guys, uh, big, big family that got even bigger. I mean, they, uh, they do not help the the Irish Catholic stereotype when it comes to no. no, there was eight there was eight brothers, right? Wasn't it like eight brothers or, or was it was it yeah. six brothers or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, and then they had like they're essentially and cousins they're and, essentially yeah. gremlins. I mean, it's just it just the amount of <laughs> the amount of uh, reproductive abilities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm a Murphy. I get it. So you know. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, but they're they're an awesome awesome group of guys. And, uh, you know, I'll still hear from them. And, and yeah. uh, when I threw out the first pitch and, and retired as a Philly, they were there. So uh, just, it's pretty cool that, um, that they, they had that kind of impact. And I think they really helped me um, in Philadelphia being treated really well by the fans, because I think the fans gravitated to where, how the Wolfpack was. And that right. really kind of gave me a buffer, um, you know, cause I wasn't, I definitely wasn't always good. And, and uh, I think because of the wolf pack, I was treated really well by the fans. Yeah. They, they were fun. And, you know, fans were looking for fun at the ballpark uh, in some of those lean years. And, and they kind of gravitated towards that. And, uh, and it kind of worked out. I mean, it, it's funny how things happen, you know, in the course of your career, but that's something that uh, people will always remember about you and your career in Philadelphia is the wolf pack. And, you know, kind of starts on a whim. All right. Uh, last question before I let you go. The the three managers you played for in Philly are all very different. You played for Terry Francona, you played for Boa, and then at the very end, you played for Charlie Manuel before uh, before you left. Um, those guys, very different styles, right? I guess Charlie and, and Terry maybe 
a little similar, but uh, but Bo seems to be uh, the outlier in that. Am I right on, on that? Bo is the outlier for pretty much every manager. I've ever <laughs> um, and, you know, I think he'd be he'd be the first to tell you that our relationship was, you know, it was as rocky as it could possibly be. I mean, there was times where in his office, I challenged him to a fight. And, and uh, there was times where he would challenge me to a fight. And then there was times where we got along great. And then there was times where we we're at each other's throat. Um, and he just, that's his personality. Yeah. And I got to know it as time went on. And, um, and you know, it was just, his, uh, his knowledge for the game is, is incredible. Um, and his, his patience may be not there, but his knowledge is. Um, and, you know, it's funny because a few years after that, I, I played for the Dodgers in 2009 where he was the bench coach. Right. Or I think he was the, the third base coach, excuse me, or the first base coach. But he, but he also, uh, he just was really good about the game, understanding the game, um, getting things to Joe Torre. And our relationship was great there. Great. We had an awesome relationship. I know there's a couple times where he really had my back. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I, can't, I think that's the way it was in Philly, too. I think, you know, I, I kind of played with a chip on my shoulder. Um, I was not a big guy. I never threw really hard. I, I kind of felt like I had to have that attitude. And I think when he played, he had that very similar yeah. kind of chip on his shoulder. So I think in some ways, I think we were kind of, you know, two positives of a magnet and kind of just bumped a little bit. Yeah. Um, but as time went on, we definitely had a good time. And, and with Tito and Charlie, you know, they're both super easygoing. Um, you know, their knowledge of the game also was great. Charlie was one of those guys that, that he was unassuming. You wouldn't think that his knowledge was so vast because it's, you know, you hear him talk and he's got that Southern kind of draw and it's a little slow, but his idea on hitting, I mean, hitting number one is his baby. And you, you hear him talk about hitting, um, his knowledge there was, was pretty incredible, but that helped you talking to him about hitting about what my approach would be to pitch. Yeah. Um, and Tito, you know, he was still kind of young in his manager managerial career. Um, but I had a great relationship with him for the, for that, you know, year and a half. Um, and as it was one of those things where I was really happy to see him just yeah. have that success as he went on. Yeah. I think anyone that got to know Terry Francona was, was not surprised and very happy to see him have that success. It just goes to show you, you know, you need, you need the horses too. If you're going to be successful as a baseball manager in the big leagues, um, he didn't always have the horses in Philadelphia, but certainly when he had them, he knew what to do with them. So I, I don't, I don't think Phil Jackson would have been Phil Jackson without Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan. Probably not. Probably not. You kind of, you need the, uh, you can't win a race without a fast car, but that's um, right. Yeah, it's one of those things. And Scotty and Michael bring us right back to Chicago and the testicles that were painted by Randy Wolf. And so, and on that note, we'll leave it there. Randy, I, I knew this would be a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking a couple minutes to to reconnect with us, to reconnect with the Phillies fans. Um, you know, you were always so well liked here. Uh, terrific 16 year career. Thanks for spending a couple minutes with us here on Glove Stores. Yeah, you got it, Greg. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. All right, Randy Wolf. We'll be right back. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA 
and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph, presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. Happy to have you with us and happy to have Charlie Manuel back with us as well as we continue to relive the magical season of 2008. Charlie, when last we spoke, uh, we were talking about the July 4th game and how things were starting to turn around a little bit for this team. You did not have a good month of June, but July was a little bit better. Uh, and here we are on July 11th, 2008. And you're in Arizona playing a series out West, which is always a challenge for yeah. a team when you're traveling like that. Kyle Kendrick is on the Hill for the Phils. Doug Davis on the Hill for the Diamondbacks. Yeah. And I don't remember a whole lot about Doug Davis, but I do remember just how good Kyle Kendrick was for you in 2008. Right. If this is a Doug Davis, I'm thinking about, he's a left-hand pitcher, kind of a tall, kind of a tall guy. Okay. And, uh, two fastball sliders, fastball run in on left hand hitters, and uh, and I remember the I remember this game because Kendry pitched real good early in the yeah. game, and he and, and he he got into the the seventh inning. I, I think it says you know like he got into the seventh inning for us, and he yep. uh, I remember that he pitched real good early, and then and, and they started getting to him kind of late. Yeah, which which was his mo, but it, it was okay because. Yeah. Your bullpen was so good, and we'll get to that in a right. minute, but your bullpen was so good that you only needed a certain amount right. out of Kyle. And for 2000, the season exactly. of 2008, he was always there. He always made his starts, and he almost always gave you a chance to win. Without a doubt. And, he, and you know, like and he took us in this game here, he took us to the right place, too. I mean, he stayed, mm -hmm. you know, like he battled. And, and, but at the same time, I remember he pitched good, real good early. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the game gets started, uh, no score in the first, and then the bottom of the second, your big guy, Ryan Howard, steps to the plate, hits a solo home run. He did that 48 times for you in 2008. Not all of the solo variety, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Um, and I know you love that, so you're up up in the game early. Uh, the D-backs do tie it up. It's 1-1 in the sixth, so we head to the bottom of the sixth, two out lightning. You've got Howard, who strikes out, and Burl flies out to start the inning. But uh, walk to Pedro Feliz, then Shane Victorino doubled. Uh, and then with Carlos up, Carlos Ruiz up, Doug Davis uncorks a wild pitch, and you get the first – or you get your second run yeah. of the game. You'll take that, right, to one fills? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Why not? Let the other pitcher help you out a little bit. And they, right. they would then walk Carlos, and Ruiz would steal its second. Now, he gets caught in a rundown, and that allows Victorino to score. Is that a design play? Do you remember? Right. I, I think once he got caught, in, uh, you know, like in, in the rundown, it was it, he was you know, like he did a job of yep. like making sure that that, it, that he got hung up and, and he did a good job of not getting tagged out too early. And, yeah. and Victorino scored. Yes. Yeah. Victorino doesn't need a whole lot of time to get from third to home. So right. just give him a few right. seconds and he's going to get there. Uh, exactly. and so at that point, you, you scored your third run. So you're up 3 1. The D backs finally get to Kendrick into the seventh. Now he's in the seventh inning, but they finally get to him. Miguel Montero singles, then Alex Romero would double, then Emilio Bonifacio doubles to score two. So you would pull Kendrick at that moment, but he had given you six plus. And uh, at that point, I think you have to be pleased with what, what your starter gave you, right? Right. 
And then RJ Swindle comes into the game. Uh, also a name that we don't hear a whole lot about. Uh, he only pitched in three games for you guys that season. This was one of the innings. He comes in and Steven Drew singles off of him, makes it 4-3. The Diamondbacks take the lead. So you pull Swindle and you, right. you hand it to Chad Durbin because you know what Durbin can do, right? Right. Tell me a little bit about the effect that, that Durbin had on this bullpen because it seems like every time we're talking about a game uh, that w- that the Phillies needed it to be held in a certain spot in the seventh or the eighth, Chad Durbin was right in the middle of it. Right. Uh, Durbs was uh, – uh, we had a lot of options with Dur- uh, Durbin. You know, like we could bring him in early if somebody got knocked out, you know, mm-hmm. like to kind of hold him and he, he could give us two innings sometime uh, two for sure, maybe uh, two and two thirds or three or whatever. But most of the time, you know, like we bought him in the middle of the game and uh, we bought him in, in, in uh, uh, close scoring games. And usually we was either tied or up and he would definitely do a good job. For, he did a good job for us. He's very steady. You could trust him. He's very, and uh, he would get us to the back end of our bullpen. Yep, he certainly would. He did it time and time again. Now, the D-backs would add one more run. It was 5-3 in the eighth, and Howard walked, and Pat Burrell singled. You brought in Eric Bruntlett to uh, pinch run for Burrell. You didn't like Burrell's wheels at the time? No, I didn't like his wheels. <laughs> like, I wanted to, uh, you know, like I wanted to run around there so I could score on, on a play. Well, that's exactly what you did because you sacrifice uh, Bruntlett over to second, and then Victorino comes up, and once again, he gets it done. He triples, and he scores two. You remember that triple? Yes, I do. Yeah. Ties it up. And then you had Lidge, Clay Condry, J.C. Romero, and Rudy Cienez all come in and pitch in this game to get you in that tied game to the bottom of the 12th. And uh, and that's when, uh, that's when things – ended for you guys you were able to to finally get the win uh coast so could do so Taguchi singled then coast moved them over sack bunt uh they walked j-roll and then jason worth who was your leadoff hitter yeah, in this right. game came up yeah, and, right. and got the big yeah. hit right uh, exactly yeah it was, it was one of those games where it was one of those games where i uh led uh, led jason worth off if you remember I drop him uh, down the three spot at times on lefties and move Victorino down behind Howard. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, there again, you know, Jason Worth, you know, he played a big part in our lineup because we could bounce him around. And so is Victorino too, you know. Yeah. And they, uh, and you know, things worked out good and uh, definitely the bottom of 12th for us. That was a long game. I remember that. It certainly was. But you get the win over Arizona, which is what it's all about. Let me ask you before I let you go. So, was it always about the pitching matchup where you batted uh, Worth and Victorino? You know, you had J-Roll up top uh, of the lineup uh, often. Is yeah. that what it was yeah. for you? If you remember, uh, Jason would, could really get hot on lefts. And, you know, like when I would hit him third, most of the time when I would hit him third and drop Victorino down, I, I might move Utley in a two-hole. But right. uh, Jason Worth's power was, was you know, like he was, he, he was using his power good. He was in a hot streak of – you know, getting the ball in the air and hit some home runs, things like that. And then, you know, like I always looked at Jason, you know, like he did enough in the game to keep his uh, – uh, in the game as far as getting hits, he, you know, he could serve balls in the right field, keep his average up in a very respectable uh, way. And then, you know, like uh, when he, he – later on and when he got hot, you know, like then, then that's when he, he usually run into a string of home runs. And yeah. so, therefore, I'd bounce him at different places in our lineup, and I could do Victorino the same way. 
Yeah, really versatile, both of those guys, and uh, really give you some options in your lineup, yeah. uh, which which always helps when you're going for a world championship. All right, well, you were one and a half games up in the East at that moment. You would lose that lead later in July, but we'll talk about that on a different day. But for now, Charlie, thanks for being with us. As yeah. always, always fun reliving 2008. Thanks, Pam. Yeah, thanks, Murph. That's good. Thank you. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app and is a production of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2021 Major League Baseball season.